Welcome to episode 24 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. And in this episode, I'm interviewing Shauna Karash. Shauna is a pioneer in the use of positive reinforcement training with horses. Her powerful and humane behavioral training techniques are an eye-opening experience for equine professionals, competitors, and amateurs alike. She has produced books and videos and traveled worldwide to teach the concepts of bridge conditioning and positive reinforcement for horses. Shauna began her training career far outside the equestrian world, working with large marine mammals. Animals such as dolphins, sea lions, and orcas cannot be coerced. Only positive reinforcement methods can be used to ask these magnificent creatures to participate voluntarily in activities with human trainers. When introduced to the world of top equestrian competition, Shauna saw immediately how reward-based training could be used to engage the horse's willingness in equestrian pursuits. A number of years ago, top trainer John Madden was so impressed with Shauna's early results that the world-renowned training facility at the Madden Farm became the testing ground for adapting positive reinforcement training for horses. By using Shauna's positive reinforcement training methods, Olympian BZ Madden taught her famous show jumper Judgment, now Judgment ISF, to overcome his fear of water and go on to win the $1 million CN International at Spruce Meadows, among many other international show jumping victories. BZ's spectacular success over decades as a top international competitor on a series of great horses is a testament not only to her extraordinary talent and skill as a rider and trainer, but also in part to the reward-based training system that Shauna first developed on the Madden farm. Shauna's infectious enthusiasm, sense of humor, years of training experience, and rapport with animals and humans makes her one of the finest positive reinforcement trainers in North America, and maybe even the world. In this episode, we discuss Shauna's first impressions of horses and how she connects this to her own previous trauma, transitioning from working with marine animals to horses and how it was different, common misconceptions with using treats in training, riding with positive reinforcement, Shauna's thoughts on negative and combined reinforcement, how to get started correctly with positive reinforcement if you've never used treats before, the two general horse personality types that Shauna has identified, the happy horse discussion as always, the importance of helping your horse learn to be a problem solver and the joy in the struggle of solving puzzles, Shauna's book recommendations and upcoming learning opportunities with Shauna, plus so much more. Shauna is highly educated and experienced in animal behavior, both with marine animals and equines. She is a compassionate, humble, and open-minded trainer with a real passion for horses enjoying their training with humans. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a happy, light, and willing partner. I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship, and now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication, so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritizing partnership with your horse. Want to find out my horse training philosophy? Access the free connection and communication mini course at amaliadempsey.com. Now sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Welcome, Shauna, to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Molly, for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. I'm really excited. So let's get started with the first question, which is, can you tell us about your horsemanship journey to date, when you got into horses, and what has led to where you are today? 
Well, and that's a good question because it's not a straight and narrow path like a lot of people. A lot of people like I did kids with horses since I was, you know, forever. And I didn't. I was actually, um, I was abused as a kid. So when I, so, and it plays into the picture because when I was probably about six years old, we would go to my granddad's farm who had quarter horses who were what are considered good horses. They were safe as could be. And, 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 but what I noticed when I was about six or seven, I think I was six. And I noticed that they're really hard to catch. And it dawned on me, they don't like to be caught. But once they're caught, we could do whatever we wanted to them. Now, I didn't know these words, but I kind of got the sense of we were imposing ourselves on them. And, and being a victim of abuse, you kind of recognize that that it was the same thing that was happening to me. You know, I was in a state of learned helplessness. I didn't have control over my world. So I, at that point, said, I don't want to be a part of any person or animal's life if I'm not improving their quality of life. So then, you know, that was at seven, that, was that wise old age of seven. And then, you know, pretty soon I realized people are complicated. I can't be responsible for that. But I stuck with the horse thing. I wanted, I loved the horses. That wasn't the deal. But I loved them enough to think, but our, our, our part of their lives isn't the greatest. And so I just went on my way. I didn't really, you know, think twice, but I wanted to work with animals. You know, I grew up and was working towards doing field research. And then I got involved with the field study of finback whales. And I went to, got a job at SeaWorld, worked with the marine mammals for 10 years. It's all positive reinforcement. They get all their food each and every day, regardless of what they do or don't do. They get all their social interactions regardless of what they do or don't do. So our job was to make sure they wanted to do what we were doing and wanted to do it to a high criteria because we had nothing to hold over them. So we had to make it fun. So that's what that's where I learned to train animals. It was all positive reinforcement, no pressure release, none of that ever. So then I went and saw a show jumping Grand Prix. There's a woman named Elizabeth Bush Burke of Anheuser-Busch, which is Budweiser beer, which is huge in the United States. And she gave us trainers tickets to see a show jumping Grand Prix. So we went and everyone else was like, okay, it was a bunch of trainers. And so we all went, everybody else was like, you know, okay. And then I was like, wait, I want to do this. <laughs> so now I had, I had a new awareness of what, what, it could be, you know, I understood now that, that we, I understood what was going on with the horses now as I, as I looked in retrospect. And I also knew that we could do things differently. And I'll tell you that night, I saw more, most of the horses to me look like unhappy horses. They look tense. They look wide eyed. The, the riders look tense. It didn't look like a pretty picture, but there are two particular horses that the horse and rider, it looked like a walk in the park. It looked like it was fun for both of them. It looked easy for both of them. And I thought, that's what I want. I want that. I want to create that. So then I started looking into horses and, and I started asking. I had access to Grand Prix children up there and started asking people, and like, that's not how it's done. That's not what horses don't learn like that. They're not smart enough to learn like that. And I was like, this seems weird. With my own eyes, I have seen because of my, I was on the board of an International Marine Animal Trainers Association. We would go see trained animals. I saw trained, target trained hyenas, meerkats, hippos, rhinos, lions, tigers, giraffes, bears, you know, hippos. I mean, goldfish, sharks. So I kind of thought, I don't know why a horse wouldn't learn this way, but I haven't done it. 
So I can't say one way or another. And so, but I kept thinking this doesn't make sense. And I wouldn't really commit to making change. I just kind of sat with this unease in my head. And finally, I saw, <laughs> we have something called People Magazine. It's not, it's not something you want to tell people you've read. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I had it from somewhere and I read this blurb about a man named Tom Dorrance. And I thought he sounds different than what I'm used to. And he's basically the grandfather of the, the natural horsemanship movement. So I called it, I, but I didn't know anything about any of this. So I just called him on the phone. <laughs> and I said, wow. <laughs> Mr. Dorrance, you know, and I said, I'm a marine mammal trainer and I would be interested in taking, you know, the positive reinforcement, the food-based training to horses. And what do you think about that? And it's a systematic approach, you know, and he said, I think it's a great idea. It turns out he had used food and knew food was really powerful with horses, but he didn't know how to wean them from the food. You know, he didn't know the systematic approach to make it more than the food. So he then invited me to come to his ranch and put it into practice for the first time with him. Now, wow. I'm like, I have to work. <laughs> no, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know, you know, could things could have gone in a, you know, a different way, you know, who knows, but it's all meant to be and it works out as it should. And yeah. then eventually I was in contact with, um, I went out to dinner with a group of people and my boyfriend at the time, Vinton Karish, who ended up being my husband. And now he's not, <laughs> he's a good guy though. There's no, no harm there, but the, uh, he put me in touch with a guy named John Madden and John Madden is busy Madden, the world renowned show jumpers husband. And Vinton said, tell John about the training you did with the marine mammals or do with the marine mammals. And so I told him about it. And he started listening more intently. And by the end, I was sending him home with a clicker because we had some left over from, from some point when we used him with the marine mammals, but we hadn't, we don't really use them with the marine mammals. We didn't call it clicker training ever. You know, if anything, it was target training. So that's kind of a dog term. But the, uh, so I sent him home with a clicker because I had some left over in a drawer from some, you know, project or something we had done. And he called me that first day and BZ had, so he listened and he went home with his clicker and, you know, I don't know what's in his head now. I'm like, I don't know. Good luck. You know, and he went home that first day and BZ had a horse who was terrified of a riding stick. You couldn't be near him on the ground, under saddle. Your neighbor couldn't have one. It couldn't be near him anywhere. And he came to BZ that way. So, so he called that first day and said, I not only got him to touch the riding stick, I can't get him to stop. So if I could turn that big of a no into that big of a yes, there's a place for this in Grand Prix show jumping. Please come here, work here, live here. We'll start a business. And that's where it all began. And so I went up to their place and kind of to see if us humans would work it out. And at this point, I bought a horse and I couldn't help but feed him because I just know that it changes a lot of pieces of him. But I didn't do systematically do bridge conditioning, teaching the clicker and the target. I didn't do all that. I was just kind of trying to learn how it was done already. And so when I went to John Abethe's, it's the first time I actually did clicker training. I did clicker conditioning. I conditioned the bridge signal for three. I did three five-minute sessions a day for three days. Then I did three five-minute sessions a day for three days with the target. That's all. It was six with days. Just with one horse? With a, a bunch of horses. Okay, yeah. So yeah. they had picked horses. They never... They did their regular thing. They were turned out and washed and ridden and on mm -hmm. the walker and all their things. But I only worked with them when they when I found them in their stalls. So 
so BZ and I, with our training, the training never overlapped. Yet at the end of the week, she said, every single one of those horses you're working is remarkably better in the arena. Wow. And that was the beginning of saying, wow, what's that about? Because I didn't know. You know, it's not like you, the marine mammals had the same thing through their whole life. Well, now we've introduced something to their life that was new. And to see the change was pretty remarkable. And it was the beginning of me of a whole nother journey. And I've learned 50 times more being with horses than I learned with marine mammals. I learned a lot of technique. I learned the science. I'm solid with those pieces. But how deep it runs is something I've really learned with the horses. And it's, it gives me chills to this. Like right now I have chills because I just, I love that it's been such a journey and been able to help change lives and horses lives. And, and it's, it's something I, you know, I wish everybody would embrace. I wish everybody could feel how different it feels when a horse is really that engaged with you because they want to, you know, it's just a, a great feeling. So, so it's one day the world will embrace it, but for now we're just kind of chipping away a bit. (laughs) Yes. Imagine how different the equestrian community would be if everyone, if everyone's goal was to just get their horse to like them kind of like you did with the marine animals like you you no matter what they did they still got all their food and your job was kind of to make them feel like they're yeah happy and like they're enjoying the process yes very interesting it was not we couldn't put ourselves first it was never us first it was always the animal and their well-being first but then we were challenged with well then how do we make this fun you know and it was it's really it's a different way of looking at it but I mean even with John Madden, he's like, well, it just makes them better athletes. So you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I was like, okay, win-win. You yeah. get a better athlete who does better in the arena. But meanwhile, this process can change their lives and make them happier horses. So a happy athlete is a successful athlete. A happy Absolutely. horse, happy athlete, successful. Of course. And when you think about it in a human, if a human is happier, they're going to perform better. So it makes sense for animals as well, right? Yes, exactly. And why do you think you learned more about this way of training with horses compared to the marine animals? You know, and I think think it's partly because horses come in with their own baggage Mm -hmm. and their own mysterious past that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. And they're rather, they're, you know, a lot of the marine mammals are flighty too, and they're prey as well as predators. So, but they're just eating fish. They don't think oh, I'm going to stock that ball of fish. <laughs> just, it's not much different than eating grass for them. You know, they're just like, just get some fish and go on their way. So they are all kind of have a skittish nature to them. But I think the horses in the world they go to and that they, most of them I meet have not had this history. I mean, things are starting to change with that now, but mostly, you know, they're, they've come from a traditional world. And just what I really saw that I think was the most astounding to me is how deep this training goes. So in the beginning, when I first wrote my first book, and I'm writing a new book now. Oh, how exciting. I wrote my, what's that? Yeah, it is. I'm excited. <laughs> and, and it'll be, you know, it, there's just so much I've learned in the 20 years. But the, when I first wrote the first book, I kind of made an assumption that everybody thought about the animal's emotions. And that's not really <laughs> how it is. But it was just, I was so entrenched in my world still that I just, kind of assumed that people, you know, had, had understood that part of it more than they did. So I realized I have to teach about 
body language and and emotions and and how do you read that and how do you make how do you make a decision about how to move forward because it doesn't mean you can't move forward it means you just need to do it more thoughtfully you know it doesn't mean we don't show anymore it means we do it more thoughtfully with more concern for is this good for this individual because i think there's some that might might not be your cup of tea but mostly if we do it thoughtfully we can teach them to love new things and that was part of what I have the babies doing, but the, um, so I think that seeing that, then the other thing, when I wrote the book, I kind of wrote it as a means to an end, you know, like, okay, you have a, a, not such a good Canada part and you need to improve your Canada part. So, you know, it was more how to address more problematic areas versus what the changes that comes about in your horse. So I really kind of shifted now to saying, because I think this is true. Training stuff is easy. It's getting the attitude right that's a hard part. So when you get the attitude right, and that's my goal then, is how do I get this really high stressed out animal to be more calm and relaxed and focused, so not so nervous? And how do I get this kind of shut down or unmotivated horse to be motivated and to brighten them up? So I think the, the whole process is, is really more about creating a learner who is happy and engaged. And it's like the marine mammals, you know, they're happy, engaged and enjoy playing the game and solving the puzzle and they're good problem solvers and, and love that. And they find it engaging. And I think that that's, that's a huge, it's a huge difference. You know, when you think about what you're focusing on and what you're trying to get people to think about. So that's been the part I think I've learned so much about. Wow. Incredible. And going back to when you first were watching that Grand Prix show jumping and realizing that perhaps some of those horses were shut down or in a state of learned helplessness, can you describe to our listeners what learned helplessness is? And do you think that competition horses do need a certain level of learned helplessness? Okay. So learned helplessness, yeah, I get off to one thing and I'm like, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> so learned helplessness, and this is what I recognized as a child with the horses. So those horses, so I'll use them as an example. They were what people call good horses because they were so safe. So once we caught them, you know, when they didn't like it, they were on a big, you know, plot of land five days a week. And then we would go get them. We had to get in the car to get them. And it was tricky to get them. And then once you got them and we brought them into the, the area around the house, they were, you, us kids could do whatever we wanted. We could hang on their legs. We could do, climb on their backs. We could do it. And they just didn't do anything. You know, they realized I have no options here. So I'll just have to submit and just be quiet. All their fighting and all of that at an early point in their life didn't work for them. So now they've quit doing it and they've just resigned themselves to being in this situation. And I'm sure my granddad bought them like that. You know, it, 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 it's just what, what we had and what we saw. And then, so it, it was quite normal. And me as a child being sexually abused, I didn't have, I didn't have a choice. You know, I went to an adult and told the adult and the adult kind of ignored it. And I, now I'm a child by myself who doesn't have anybody to tell, you know what I mean? And I live in a house that has to, you know, so I didn't have any choice. So all I could do was, you know, just shut it out, you know? So, and then I think, so the learned helplessness is, you know, going to the fight, doing what you can physically, mentally, trying to do what you can to stop the situation. And after a while you learn nothing works. 
So you give up and now you're in a state of learned helplessness, which makes you very compliant. So that's what that is. Now, the next part of the question, I do not want any part of learned helplessness in, in a horse I'm going to ride at any level or anything I do. I don't think that is the right thing to do. I don't think it's necessary. In fact, I think if I built a proper relationship, we're going to have, we've learned, you know, there's times I'm like, okay, I know there's going to be times where I have to say, no, we have to go this way. I'm, I'm the adult who knows that a car's coming and you're going to get hit. We're going to get hit if we go this way. We must go this way. Or I'm, you know, whatever it might, or you need to take this medicine, no matter what you think, you know. And so there's times we, we have to do things that maybe aren't the, the happiest for them. But I really don't want to go there unless I have to. So I want to teach, like even with baby Henley, you know, she's two and she'll be like, I want to go over here. And I'll say, Henley, we're going to go over here. So we're walking on a lead rope because we're out somewhere and she can't be completely liberty. And I'll say, no, we're going to go this way. And as soon as she goes, okay, we'll go this way. I'll say, okay, we'll go back over there and smell that thing. So that I'm trying to teach her, just listen to what I'm asking you to do. And I'll get you back to that thing that is important to you. So it's a way in little tiny ways that I can create some understanding of working together and that we're, you will get to see the things you do. And it doesn't mean always, but this is kind of how I've taught horses to be part of a, a team. You know, if they really want to go one way and I want, need it to want to, or I feel I'm really strongly going that way and I go, let's go this way. And when they go, okay, then I might make a U-turn and go the other way, you know, teaching them that my, I would reinforce them on the other side and say, good, thank you for this. And then let's go back the other way. So really trying to recognize what they value and what's important to them, but also saying we can work together with these things and I'm looking out for you. So I think there's so many ways that we can create a partnership that is alive. I want a horse alive and engaged and and listening and, and learned helplessness has some really, you know, it has some connotations that can happen with it that are not traits I want to establish in a horse. You know, they can become fearful. They can become checked out. They can become dull. They can become, you know, a lot of things. There's ramifications that can vary and we don't know what they would be. It's just never going to be worth it. And it's, I think when we're looking at the animal's well-being and welfare, that doesn't fall in line with me for a happy animal. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't wish that on any person or animal. Yes. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is you give the horse a lot of choice and a lot of, um, I guess that, that two-way communication, but there are still some times where you say, actually, we need to do this right now just to keep the horse safe. But on the flip side of that, you might also reinforce that and then give them what they actually wanted. So it sounds like it's not a dictatorship. It is a two-way street. There is a conversation and you really value how the horse feels in the whole training process, which I love the sound of. It's amazing. And I, that's, and that's exactly it. I want to teach them at the small little things that aren't life and death situations that mm -hmm. let's just go over here. And then you know, usually if I lay that foundation, they're like, okay, we'll just go over there, you know, and teach them that's good. So but I really do want to listen. You know, I want them to feel that it's a partnership and that their voice matters. And choice is huge through most everything we do. I do so much stuff at Liberty and say, we're going to learn it at Liberty first. The equipment will come later. But first, we're going to learn how to load in a trailer with nothing. We're going to learn how to go, you know, around the round, the reverse round pen with no equipment. And later we might add in the lunging equipment, but only once it's clear and it's understood and they're doing it and they're choosing it. 
the trailer loading only once they're going in, they're holding, I can close it up and they're all good. Will I add the equipment? So it shows me they know it, they like it, they choose it, they clearly know what it's about and what's being asked of them and they're showing up to do it. So I think that the choice is really important for them. That freedom to choose often helps them make better choices, you know, more, more choices to work with us. And that's important. Yeah, very cool. And um, what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions when it comes to positive reinforcement or clicker training? Oh, that's a good one. Because <laughs> there's some big ones. You know, one I think is I think a number one, people say you can't you shouldn't hand feed a horse because you're going to create a spoiled mouthy horse. I've worked with aggressive horses that will want to kill people. <laughs> I've worked with extreme biters. I've worked with just mouthy horses. And in each of those situations, I've used food to correct the behavior. So what I think where the, the, the misconception comes in is they think people don't realize every single time you feed your horse, you are reinforcing something. So the people with good intentions that feed the horse for reaching towards them are, are teaching that horse to reach towards them. Or if they're teaching them to come into their body as they feed them, the horse will come in more. So I think that they, they've learned along the way that, that being pushy and mouthy has worked for them. So the first thing I teach them is, nope, we're gonna do the complete opposite. We're gonna teach you to keep your head away. So manners is the very first thing I teach. So I establish this turning your head away will get you reinforced. So I think that's, it's the very first thing I do, but I think that's probably your A number one misconception. And I think sometimes the people that have really <laughs> brought that about, you know, that have really let that become a thing are people that are with good intentions, but they've carried on for too long and they haven't, you know, they haven't noticed, you know, and meanwhile, their trainer's like, you know, he's, he's a mess, you know, he's hard to be around or whatever. And the, the other person's naively doing it. So so getting that sorted out that the how that, that we establish the manners and that's the first thing they learn. And, and it doesn't take long. It, it doesn't take long. You have to repeat it in order for it to become a new habit. But the, initially, I can usually within 45 seconds get them to turn their head away as opposed to pushing and mugging me. Then the other thing I think is that you always need to have the food because you don't. This is a systematic approach where we are going to build on things. And essentially, I'm going to fade the target and the clicker and the food from each behavior. I still, I personally still carry food on me because that's, I think, is really valuable. And to, re, to maintain things, you need to maintain them through reinforcing them. So we're either going to use pressure and release or we're going to offer, add something as positive reinforcements or subtracting something or adding something. So I really like the adding something because it, it does some things to the brain, which are much different than pressure release. It, you know, can induce endorphins and dopamines versus cortisol, which can come from the, the other part of the brain. So I think it has some real benefits to it that are, are something that I will use all the time. And I'm a marine mammal trainer, even though it's been 30 years, you know, but so I would always do that, but I fade, you know, first Henley was putting on the halter and there you go. Now you just put on the halter and go and we've moved on to other things, you know, so you keep progressing. But what you're really doing is creating a good association with each behavior through classic conditioning. So then they're like, oh, I love canter. Why wouldn't I canter? They don't. Positive reinforcement can be done poorly, just like anything can. And you can do it if they think it's all about the food. You, you haven't done it well, in my opinion. 
because when I work with them, they don't think it's all about the food. In fact, they'll leave the food in order to continue playing the game. And so that's what I want is them to be engaged in the game we're playing, not thinking you owe me. So that's kind of the trick is to shaping these things into being bigger. So I fade the, the food and the target from and the clicker from most behaviors. I just build them up with duration and then a chain of behaviors. And it's not abrupt. I don't just quit cold turkey, but I fade it away and build it up. So it's kind of a long answer there. <laughs> so I think those are two of the biggest one, but there are other misconceptions. But, but I think those are two that are that are really stick in people's crawls, you know, as it were. Yeah. That might be a U.S. saying, so <laughs> it might not translate well, but, you know, it's a thing that people get hung up on. Yeah. And how quickly do you fade out the use of treats for a certain behavior? Well, I think it depends on the behavior and the horse's history. So if the horse has had a really unpleasant history with something, I may use it a lot longer to really, we do something called, okay, this is where the science comes in because all this is based in science. I didn't make it up but it's called systematic desensitization and counter conditioning. So it's big words, but what it is, is okay. So a horse who hates the trailer has, it finds it very reinforcing to avoid the trailer, not very reinforcing to get near the trailer. So every time I put a weight on this other side of the scale, I start rebalancing or counterbalancing the scales. So for some horses, it's like bang, 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 I'm good. And for others they are like, I have a long you know, PTSD kind of history with this, and it'll take longer to get them past it. So I would continue to use food for a long time, but I still would build up duration so that I'm not having to every single every single piece, but it can be, you know, it can be a week, but it might be a few months depending on the horse and the situation. So it's hard to say they're just individuals with individual paths. Yeah, like most horse-related questions, it always depends on the individual horse. Yes, that's that's I had somebody say. You always say it depends. Yeah, like, oh, <laughs> that's because yeah. it does always depend. Another <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> misconception people might have is, or perhaps some confusion around um, positive reinforcement training is: how do you do that under saddle? How do you ride with Ooh. treats? Can you elaborate yeah. more on how that works? Yes. That, and that's a good one. Thank you for bringing that up. Me coming as a marine mammal trainer, I'm like, it's the same training. You're just in a different place. It's no different. It's behaviors. And I'm just up here as opposed to down there. When I, most horse people have this huge disconnect between groundwork and ridden work. And so and it just kind of, it kind of befuddles me because I'm like, it's the same. You, you have different steps to take, but so does everything, you know? So it is really it is very simple to feed under saddle. So I ride with a bum bag. So that makes it easy to have food on me. And I teach them to take food. A lot of times when you first click, if they have a ridden history, when you first click, they might not respond because they're like, that doesn't count under saddle because they're used to a different set of rules. So I sometimes have to say, okay, I click, stop, pull your head around, feed you and build up their response. But I always work it on the ground first. So I make sure I've trained a few things and they're like, I love this behavior or I love this training game and I'm invested in it. And then I take it to under saddle. And, and it's, it's really easy to, to reinforce them. But let's think about, so training things, there's ways that we can train things without using pressure as a, as the motivator. So 
I think this is also another piece. So without using pressure as a motivator. So instead of thinking, I'm going to keep my legs on you. So baby Henley, let's say, when she's time for ridden work, which she's not yet, you know, there's ways from that. But when I'm on her and I want her to go forward and I want to teach her what the leg on means, because putting the leg on can, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean it's aversive. If I put leg on leg off and then give her a cue. So it's different if I'm saying leg is on until you move forward. If leg is on until you move forward and that increases the frequency of that behavior happening, it means she wanted the leg to go away, which means the leg was aversive. You know, that even if it's just mildly, it, otherwise it, the behavior wouldn't increase in frequency. So that's a piece that I think is really um, an important piece that it's just because, because we're going to train tactile cues that may look like traditional cues. It's how it was trained that is different. So instead of putting my leg on and keep the pressure there until she goes forward or escalating pressure until I get a response, I would have a cone with a target in it because I, I teach them to touch their nose with a target for those who don't know. Um, so they, if, if the target's there and I've taught them to go to the target, I can apply pressure with the leg for a moment and say target or somebody on the ground can point to target. And pretty soon she learns I feel that, you know, that touch with the leg then I should go forward. I wouldn't click touching the target. I would click the walking because I think this is an important part. You click on the behavior you want to see more of. If I click on the touching the target, she's stopping. And my goal would be moving. So I will click the moving until that becomes a consistent thing. But it's a way I can bring clarity to it. So there's a number of little things you can do that can create stopping or going or, you know, different things for under saddle work. But let's say I have a horse who's a crossover horse. So it's a horse who's learned it all already with, with traditional training. And somebody says, or I say, you know, or whatever, I've taken in a horse. I want to work with this horse using positive reinforcement now. What do I need to do? Do you have to start all over? Or can you, you know, just keep moving forward? And what I say is you can keep moving forward. I will start trying to build a positive reinforcement history with each of the behaviors. But as long as I don't see any worry or stress related to that behavior, I don't think you have to go back and do it all over. But there's sometimes, and, and I look for the subtlest things though. I'm looking for that pointy chin or the lip to get square or the eyes to get big or the head to rise or the tail to swish. So all of those things telling me there's a little, there's some tension here because they're talking to us all the time. But it's subtle communication until, it, and, and we've kind of typically in the traditional world have learned it's when it's big. And you're like, actually, they told us at a tiny little thing. And if we pay attention to that tiny little thing, we can go, that's a little awkward for you, isn't it? And then we can address it before it's a big giant thing, you know? So it's easy to go, that's more, that's more worry in there than, than you might think, you know, and I think that's what's hard about those shut down learned helplessness horses. Sometimes they don't show you and they just keep it all in and keep it all in. And that's a horse where people say, just bolt out of nowhere. And you're like, it's not really nowhere, but, but he's hidden signs, you know, he's learned to hide them lest he be corrected or we haven't noticed them. So, so that's how I figured out what do I need to change? Sometimes something, sometimes all of it, Sometimes it's just a couple little pieces, but I look at each step along the way and say, how are you with this? How are you with this? How are you with this? And I'll always start with a few things on the ground first so they understand the training and start to learn how to be good problem solvers. So that will make a difference there. 
Yes. Okay. I see. And um, when it comes to riding, sometimes I've seen horses who are clicker trained. As soon as they uh, use the clicker, the horse slams on the brakes. <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you address that? Do you see that as a problem? Like how how does that and, work in your world? <laughs> yes. I, and I I at first I don't mind it because I want to see them showing me that they are stopping. But I don't want the slamming on the brakes. That's not good for me or them. You know, that's so what I'll do. And my, the very first horse I brought along was from John Abizi. And he was, he would be, he'd slam on the brakes. So he's the first horse I've done under saddle as a baby and thought, okay, how do we deal with this? So what I do is I keep my leg on for another stride or so, so yeah. that he learns to have a nice soft stop. So he learns I'm still going to get reinforced, but it's a natural stop, which once they figure that out, they're actually a bit relieved too, you know, because it's a little hard and I don't want them to think they're going to miss the opportunity. I said, yes, that's nice. Now let's stop normally. So I will support a stride or two until they learn to that that's the new way. So I train it like a behavior, I guess, essentially. Yeah. Okay. And do John and BZ still use positive reinforcement and how, how do they incorporate it like do they just do the click training separate to the riding or have they made it a part of their full program you know and I've been out of touch with them for a while okay. but I knew that after we had left they'd still worked with you know some horses and big things and and had used it on in a number of situations mm -hmm. and I knew for a while that every single horse who came through that door was getting bridge conditioned target trained so they had the foundation what they did with it from there was you know, was depended on if something came up, then they had the foundation there. But I don't know what they do nowadays. Okay. But the way that it made such a difference in the horses and the world, their world and how they were better in the arena, I imagine they still and actually, I have seen a few things on television when the groom is at the exit with uh, at the out gate, the in gate with carrots. So immediately uh. giving them carrots as soon as they come out. So they're using them in some capacity. I don't know what it looks like through the training process, but I imagine it is there and used through the training process. Yeah. So I don't know. I can't really answer that 100%, okay. but, yeah. but that's the best I've got. Okay. So can you tell us, as a predominantly positive reinforcement trainer, what are your thoughts on negative reinforcement? Um, well, I think that's... That's a good question because way back when people kind of took negative reinforcement to mean, you know, I beat my horse. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's kind of was the social definition and, and it's not a true definition. It really still increases the frequency of behavior, but simply by removing the pressure. So mm -hmm. while I, you know, does it happen still, even if you try not to? Yeah, sometimes it does. And I think that it is not, it is not necessarily a bad thing. What I try to do is I try to focus on the positive reinforcement because this is a part is new that's new. And because I was with marine mammals, I mean, that's how we trained everything. And we were quite creative with that. So I think, why not go there? If, if I can come up with a way, why would I not choose to go with the, you know, least aversive, minimally evasive, you know, kind of, or at least, you know, just pick those things. So I don't think it is, you know, unto itself, it is a bad thing. And I think there's some people that are really dead against it. I think we can be, I think sometimes though, if we can, if we're mixing the two, it can be quite confusing for some horses. Okay. So I do think some horses really start feeling insecure with it. They don't know 
what's going to show up? Is it the one who does this or the one who does that, that the other thing? And I think it is, it, it is knowing how your horse takes it. One of the things I used to say a lot is Minty learned everything through positive reinforcement. If you came to him and said, Minty, move over. And I went to using, you know, some tactile or touching or pressure that was not, you know, trained through positive reinforcement. I don't think he would take offense to that because our whole relationship was built on so much trust and good things that I was classically conditioned. He would see me and think it's my favorite person in the world. And so he he would be much more you know, he didn't see things as offensive. He's very optimistic in his view of the world. So while I wouldn't choose to do it, there was a time when somebody got on my horse and, and they, on him, on Minty, and other people would ride Minty who never fed him. And he was all good for them because he, he knew the cues, those cues, even though they're traditional cues, were trained through positive reinforcement. So he's like, they're all good. I love that. Why wouldn't I can her? And she got on and her dog started to come in the arena. And she started treating him like he was a cow horse. Well, he's a 16-3 thoroughbred. He doesn't know this. And she was being all rough and trying to chase her dog out of the arena. And I just kind of was like, okay, that's, you know, mental note. Pay a little more attention to who's getting on. But he didn't really take offense to it. He didn't seem rattled by it. He wasn't shaken. He wasn't, he was just like, okay, you don't quite have to talk so loud. But he, he didn't take offense to it. So I think. It really is, while I wouldn't, that's not where I'm going to choose to go to teach behavior. I also think, you know, horses come in that, that we're taught everything through negative reinforcement. I don't think I have to teach everything all over. I look for the things where I feel like there's some, maybe some tension involved or some worry. You know, the eyes just get a little bit bigger. The chin gets a little bit pointier or the lips get a little tighter. Then I look at those and think, okay. That says this piece is worrying you. Maybe we do need to unpack this one and retrain it. So I think it's, it, you know, there. this is how it's been done for so many years. and It's been successfully done. So it's not, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world where some people can think that way. So I really think it depends on the horse, their history, the type of, because positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement can both be done really well or really poorly. So I think some of the horses, I look at Beezy's horses. Beezy's horses came in and they had learned their whole everything through good negative reinforcement before they even got to Beezy. She picked horses who enjoyed their jobs and enjoyed their lives and their training. And most of those horses were like, I'm good. You know, they weren't in a rattle play. So I think it really depends on the horse and the history that's been part of their learning. Mm, yes. And you mentioned some horses might get a bit confused if you do use a bit of positive and negative reinforcement. What would your advice be around trying to avoid that confusion? Like, would you separate behaviors that you use negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement for? I know you only do positive reinforcement really, but what would your advice be for someone who's would, wanting to do a bit of both? Yes. And I would, I would encourage the more we encourage them to be problem solvers through the positive reinforcement, they start thinking, I love this. And this is where I'm going to go. And so they're like, and I love problem solving. So I find the more we do it, the less we need to resort back to another way because we have them with us and they're really thinking through it. So Mm -hmm. if I found that they're, so I would choose to go again, more positive reinforcement than negative Mm -hmm. and give them a chance to think and process it, you know? So I go, okay, do you get it? As opposed to just escalating the pressure right away, I would try to find another way to create it. So if I felt like there was a horse that was, it's the more sensitive horses or the horses who have had 
I think, a worse history with it that really kind of feel that conflict because one feels worrisome and one feels good. So I think those are the horses. So I would work on the relaxation as being an underlying thing with everything. And with those horses, it felt like it was maybe not the greatest history. With those, I probably choose to keep onto the, you know, a different route. But if they were kind of like, you know, I'm okay, I I wouldn't worry about it so much. I would just try to, you know, so it's reading the horse and looking at the individual and figuring out, do you need, do you need more, you know, patience and, and relaxation? Relaxation is going to help quite a bit. Yeah. And it sounds like from the, the different trainers that I've spoken with on this podcast, the common denominator, whether you train positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement or combined is that relaxation piece. So mm-hmm. you know, it's got to start with relaxation and we don't want to be no matter what um, we use, we don't want to be using it in a way where we're scaring the horse, confusing the horse, getting the horse frustrated. So that's where that layer of relaxation as a foundation is is really handy. And I think all good trainers agree with that. Yes. Yes. And I think that's the, and one of the things that's really important is clarity brings relaxation. Yes. So I love that. Uh, you know, so we can get, bring clarity to the equation then I'm like, well, then you will be relaxed. When you don't know what to do, they could get worried. But if they're like, I do know what to do. They tend to just settle in. And sometimes when I'm starting with a horse that only knows one thing, it can also be quite hard on a horse to throw away everything they know. Yeah. You know, so all of a sudden now they are worried about getting the wrong answer. They don't know what it goes. And so sometimes I think we need to bring in their common language. Even if we plan to transition to the other I think sometimes bringing in things that help bring them clarity so they can relax and then teaching them to enjoy problem solving and know and teach them that not knowing the answer isn't the worst thing. You know, we're there. You you just think through it. We're all good. We're going to get there. There's not corrections. I'm just going to be here trying to help you figure it out. And so I think that's important, that patience and and relaxation and going slow, giving a chance to think. Yeah. And just having that attitude of I'm here to help you rather than I'm going to make you do it. I think yes. it's key no matter what you use as well. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So how can someone get started with positive reinforcement if they've always used negative reinforcement? You know, and I think that's a good question because sometimes it seems daunting. You know, they're going into a place where they don't know what we've been doing, you know, or, or they're going to be new with a new piece of it. So I think, you know, and this is, I have a podcast too, but my podcast is very much a walking through lessons. You know, so it, so I think the podcast has become a really good lesson program. If you want to learn about the first few steps and why it works or how to do it or want to think about it, I think those first few podcasts are very um, instructional for those that are getting started with positive reinforcement. What I've tried to do is help those people stay out of the, the potholes that can come, you know, the, the, the parts that can be challenging where people get into a predicament with it. So I would think that is probably a great way to look into it if somebody's considering, but they're not sure what to do because I walk through how to do it and where the problems are. And I do it with a horse and try to figure out what, you know, and, and we don't always do it just right. So I think it's a good place to entertain that and, and see how that goes first and then, then kind of go from there because there's a lot of resources out there nowadays, you know, and that's a great thing. Yes, and it can be hard for people to figure out where to start. I have personally listened to every single one of those podcasts when I was starting <laughs> to get involved in positive, which is how I found you. So, 
yeah, I can definitely <laughs> recommend that's a great place to start as well. Um, now, can you tell us what do you think makes a happy horse? I think, you know, I think I think the problem solving and, and them being active participants in the training is really huge. Some behaviorists have have kind of debated and said choice and free choice is a huge uh, they think it can be a, a primary reinforcement. So I think considering that when we say this, you can do this or not do it, what would you like to do? And then we make it worth their while. If that choice is so reinforcing, I think it's a great way to go and say we're part of this. But then we need a way to encourage them to make the right decisions and help them find the right answer. So mm -hmm. there was a study that was done, I, I guess it was in the 60s, where they gave animals free food. Then they gave them, they taught them to hit a lever for food. And they, I think it started with pigeons and it moved to other animals. Then they gave him, gave those animals both options. And what do you think they tended to do? Ignore the free food and go to the lever for food. So I think that says something. It's, it is, it's amazing. And it says something about what's in them and that they, when positive reinforcement is done well, because it can be done poorly. I think that they love playing the game. We've engaged them in the game. We've upped the criteria just enough for them to be struggling to figure out what it is, but not so much that they, they lose their way. And you know what I think of it as? I think of it, I love to do like crosswords and Sudoku puzzles and nobody has to pay me for those. I mean, that's, I just love to do them. There's something yeah. in me that loves figuring it out. But if you gave me the same exact puzzle every single day, I would be like, I just fill it in, but it wouldn't be fun. I like to struggle. Even sometimes it's harder than I can do. Sometimes it's easier. But all of that, I think really it feeds my soul. And I think it's not so different for, for the animals. So I think a happy horse has some choice. They There's something in it for them. And I think that the we keep them engaged in the game and teaching them to be problem solvers. Because that's what, and it also, it creates a partnership that is, that they can, they can go to you and know there's a safety. So when they want to explore things and they're going, wow, that's kind of weird. If they get a little worried, they go, I'm with my human, they'll be okay. So I think there's a lot of elements that do it. But I think the game is probably a really big part of it, a part of what keeps them challenged enough and stimulated enough. Because like I said with the marine mammals, they got all their food each and every day. They got all their social interactions each and every day our job was to make it fun so if they would want to show up and think this is the best thing this is what i want to do and i think it's kind of same with the horses if we make it fun it, it, and, and it has to start with us we have to have fun too because if we're all like you gotta do this you know yeah. then they they kind of feel that and they're like you know you're weird or you know this feels too tense so we yeah. need to have fun and then they can have fun and we can still go to really high criteria you yeah. know i think that's important people think well, then that's just spoiled horses, but it's not. You can get to really high criteria, but it's a it's a systematic approach to using the positive reinforcement. So I think that's a big, big part of it. Yeah. So it sounds like your kind of definition of a happy horse is more than just the basic needs being met. It's that, I guess, activating that seeking system in the horse where they're engaged in something that's stimulating and challenging and there is joy in, in that struggle in a way. Um, yeah. It's interesting because I feel like horse people can relate because let's be honest, the horse journey, there's a bit of struggle involved in that. And if 
if we weren't looking for that, we'd probably just have motorbikes or something, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I do, I don't think we're so different from the horses. You know, I think that what motivates us is maybe a little different because we have more complex world, but I do think it is the same, you know, kind of a a similar, you know, figuring it out together and creating a, a, a stronger bond. And what I found too, is sometimes when I'll start working with horses that are kind of nervous horses who don't really like the world, you know, they're a little worried about everything in the world. When we start doing the positive reinforcement and they start kind of, you see their confidence growing and you see their curiosity growing and you see those things changing them in their free time, you know? And then I'm like, this is now a more balanced, emotionally balanced horse, you know, physically too, but, but the emotional part, you'll start to see them enjoying their time, even not with their humans, that they just look more well-balanced and happy. And that's really, it it makes me feel like they're more well-rounded at that point. Yeah, nice. And I feel like you can definitely tell the difference between when you're playing with a horse who isn't really, hasn't had that seeking system activated. They're not really thinking about what the answer is versus a horse who is actively like, oh, what is it we're doing? It's it's a very yes. different feeling. And I think if you haven't experienced that before, people listening might be like, oh, I don't really know what that feels like. But I'd encourage people to to try and, and get there because it's a completely different experience with your horse. It's I've even worked with people that are really high competitors. You know, they're 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 in the Olympics, you know, and they said, I've had a great relationship with my horse, you know, and they said, but with this, it's a little, it's even better. I didn't even know it could be better. And it is, I think it really is. And you have to, you can't tell people and have them believe it. You know, all you can do is say, just try it. There's times too, when I start somebody, you can tell they've gotten excited and they're going to start their journey with the horses, with the positive reinforcement. And I won't say anything about the relationship. I just think, I'm so excited for them. They're going to discover this whole nother thing, but I just keep my mouth shut. And sure enough, in a week or two, you know, they're like, it's amazing. And you're like, I know, but they just have to discover it for themselves. And I think it's really, it's amazing. And it gives me chills. You know, it's very reinforcing. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Now, some people say with positive reinforcement, this is, um, you know, because I use traits in my training and positive reinforcement and some of my students are not necessarily open to it. And they'll say something like, I want the horse to love me for me, not for my food. What would your response be to that? Well, it, it's, it all goes back to the classic conditioning because everything they do or don't do is building an emotional association. So when I, and that's why I say when it's done well, it is not all about the food. Now, does it start with the food? Yes. Will it, I keep the food throughout, but, it, but it's not with every single behavior. You know, you teach and put a halter on a priest and like, I love my halter because it becomes classically conditioned. There's now an emotional association with a halter that is good and happy. And after a while, I just, I kind of build up the duration. I put on the halter, then go to do something else and feed that. So pretty soon they just put the halter on. They're like, I love my halter. Why wouldn't I put on my halter? And so there's always an association being established. So if we can build an association with us that is good and strong, I mean, that's why they like us in the first place or don't. You know what I mean? There's some association and it's not, if we've always brought pressure and release to them, then, then they can look at us and go, I just rather, you know, oh, here comes the one that even though it may not be hard or hurtful, they still, you know, we're kind of bringing something that they can be like, eh. but when we use a positive reinforcement, we're really building up a relationship 
or an association because it's all reinforcement history. Everything they do is because it's worked for them. They've got something they want or avoided something they don't want. So when we can build a stronger reinforcement history with us, it doesn't mean they're doing it for the food if we've done it right. If they're doing it for the food, we haven't done it well. So that just means it's time to think about some, think of it a little bit deeper. So if if they think it's going to be all about the food, I think just they need a little more education about how to do it, you know, because it is, you know, it's that it just really creates a new relationship that is so powerful. That's, you know, and I can do like with Minty or Georgie, my early horses, I could do an hour and a half, two hour session with a tiny amount of food and they wanted to keep going. So clearly it wasn't all about the food or back to the marine mammals. It was, they got all their food each and every day. You know, that we had nothing to, to hold over their heads, but they still wanted to show up and do the training sessions. And that's the key that we're doing with the horses. You're going to get all your food each and every day. But if we can kind of add some fun into it or reinforce those good efforts, we'll get more and more from them. And our relationship just gets stronger, even when there isn't food there. Yes. Classic conditioning. (laughs) It sort of reminds me of who knows if this you you might be able to give me some clarity around this. But so maybe I've been classically conditioned to like the smell of sunscreen, right? Because sunscreen to me, I feel like, oh, good times going to the beach summer good feelings so whenever i smell sunscreen i'm like oh i'm excited (laughs) i think that is a great analogy and there's a lot of people um that you know love the smell of like coconut oil again it's something they associate with the beach whether they have it on or other people have it on but i think that's a great analogy that kind of association you don't think about why it is you know you don't go oh this means this you're just like oh that's such a good feeling yeah. And I, I think it's really a good analogy because that's the classic conditioning. Mm, and, and meanwhile, if there's something that you really don't like and it always smells like something, you'll start to not like that smell, you know? So yeah. it's the same sort of thing one way or another. So it's, that's a great analogy. Hmm, interesting. And you've mentioned a few times um, positive reinforcement can be done well or not well. What would be some features of it not being done well? I think one thing is if it ever feels like it is all about the food and there feels a sense of entitlement, like they do something and they're like, you owe me, you know, (laughs) because there's that certain feeling like I did it your turn versus I did it and I want to keep doing it. So if I ever feel that feeling, I think, okay, this is, this hasn't had the right association. So what I do try to do to keep it, to keep it going is I keep the game afoot. So I want to have I raise the criteria all the time, just a little bit. So right off the bat, I I start working on things like even when we're teaching them to keep their head to themselves. At first, it's just for a split second. And that's a little bit longer. And that's a little bit longer. And that's a little bit longer. And maybe it's a little bit lower. And maybe until. So it's it's getting a little more challenging all the time, but slow enough that they can find the answer and have success. Because if I go too fast, then they don't have success. We get frustration. But if we go too slow, then they're like, well, there's no fun in this. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not keeping them thinking, oh, I got the answer. It's doing the same crossword puzzle every single day yeah. where you're like, blah, I don't even care to do it, but I'll do it. Pay me versus, hmm, do I get it? And struggling through it a bit. So it's, it's it, you know, I always say it's part art and part science. Mm-hmm. So the science is there. You can read in textbooks or read in textbooks, but if you're not spending, Spending time with the horses and trying to put it into effect, 
it, it, you're not going to get it. So there's an art now. You have to go do it. You got some trial and error. You have to be able to read the horse. And that's when it really works together. So that's where kind of the art meets the science is how much it's different. You know, some horses I need to go slower and some horses I need to go faster. Mm. And some horses have to mix it up more because they're like, I'll get bored in a heartbeat, you know, and I got to keep going. But I yeah. think keeping that game of foot, keeping a lot of success in the game and building duration. So I don't just drop the food. I start saying, okay, you've got that. Let's put a little more duration, a little bit more duration, a little bit more duration. Then mm. even when I'm building, you know, the length of the behavior, I still will go back and sometimes reinforce the first try. So mm. it keeps their attitude really good. They don't know exactly when they might get reinforced. There's variability in the whole process. There's different food in the process. And so I think it's, it is already when you get to that point, but it, it's when I feel like there's a sense of entitlement. I start thinking, okay, if you're not going to do it without the food, then I've got, I've got you in a different place than I wanted you to. So I then try to go back and think, let's get back to the game part and it will, will be making better. We will stay engaged and stay enjoying it. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a fine line between or get a delicate balance between that, um, you know, trying to increase the difficulty of the exercise, but without uh, making a big jump to something where they just can't work out what it is that you're looking for. Yes, exactly. That's that's the fun of it, I guess, the art of it, experimenting and seeing what works for each horse and, yeah, applying that science but actually having fun with the trial and error part of it as well. Yes, and and, and are there times that after all these years I go, let's do this, and I go, oh, I went too fast. You know, (laughs) and you have to go back and go, all right, that one wasn't quite the right way, you know. So we are always learning ourselves too and having to figure out, you know, I'll ask the question. And go, okay, I need to back up a little bit. So I, I want to encourage people not to get hard on yourselves if you find that you've done something. I always say it's not mistakes. We're not making mistakes. They're not making mistakes. It's all information. Yes. So I'm learning, okay, that one didn't work so well, even though I may think, oh, golly, I'll never do that again. I just <laughs> try to look at it and go, but I thought it was a good idea. So all I can do is learn from that and say, okay, mental note. And because it can be so different for different horses, I may have done it 50 times one way. And then this horse is like, mm, that's, I don't get that. And you have to go, okay, then I need to come back to the drawing board and start again. So encouraging yeah. people as you learn to, to not be afraid to try, you know, and, and not get hung up the thinking I have to do it right. Or I'll mess it up because that's not the case. Just be observant and you'll, you'll learn and figure out as you go. I think that's great for people to hear because so often I hear people say things like, oh, I'm afraid of making a mistake. I want to do things right and perfectly. And it's like, well, the process is kind of messing it up every now and then. Like (laughs) that's how you learn. (laughs) It is. And I tell people a lot when I start like with a horse at a clinic, I say, I am actually kind of, I start off a pretty messy trainer. Like those early sessions, I'm not trying to be perfect because I think that that represents to the horse something that isn't so fun. So I'm like, little this, little this, I'll refine the behavior as we go. So it it shapes into something I really want to see. But in the beginning, I'm like, it's going to be more fun than tedious. So so it's going to be a little messy and it's going to be a little sloppy. I'm going to go, well, that was good. Or I won't bridge that later, but I'll bridge it right now. I'll click it right now. So I think it's important to to know it should be fun first. And then we can refine that into the higher criteria behavior that we're looking for 
Yes, I love that. And I think that horses can feel that pressure. If you put that on yourself, they almost feel it projected onto them, which is not fun for the horse. So I love that you mentioned that. It is so true. And you can tell people that have this desire to get it right, you know, and the horses (laughs) will walk away from them. They'll just like be like, I'm just not interested. And, and it's, you know, it's hard because sometimes those people been like that their whole lives about everything. And you're kind of like, okay, just take a deep breath and have fun. And, you know, and it can be a challenge. So it is, but it is really important. They know more about what we're doing and thinking than we honestly, I think typically know about ourselves. Mm. Yes. Horses are lessons in life. Yes, they are. They're paying attention to all of our stuff when we don't as much, you know, Yeah, and they kind of bring up what we need to learn in other aspects of our life, which I love as well. (laughs) Yeah, they do. (laughs) On a completely other note, if you could have dinner with any three horse people, dead or alive, who would it be and why, and what would you ask them? Wow, that's 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 a tricky one. Okay, who would, oh golly, (laughs) who, I don't know, that's a really... (laughs) hard one you know I think of I guess I think of successful athletic people so Mm -hmm. people that have at one I would want to spend time with Tom Dorrance because that's a person who I first talked to that encouraged me to go forward he's gone now and he invited me to his ranch and I didn't take it up on him but the more I've learned I didn't take him up on it but the more I've learned about him I realize he is quite he was quite a, an interested horseman. He would just go to little 4-H clubs, which are for us like little kids learning the basics. And he would go to a session, a, a clinic on grooming at that level, you know, and, and that he would just sit and watch and listen. I think it'd be fascinating to talk more with him. And then, then I think I, I would think of competitors, but I'm not sure exactly which ones, but learning a little bit from why and how they got to where they are Mm -hmm. and then wanting, yeah, just to pick their brains a little bit more because it's going to be the softer people that I would like, you know, the ones that have had success in a way that isn't as, as, you know, you can tell it's almost looks magical. So I think some of those people, but I don't know exactly who right now. They have to take a little research because yeah. there's some really good ones, but, but I would want to figure out how they got there and what their philosophy was. So that's a, that's a really good question. Now, you know, I'm going to think about this for a week. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that one, no, that one replaces this one. Now, yeah. you know, so yeah. That's a good question of all. Y'all have to yeah. keep thinking on that. Yeah. I do like that question. And here's another good one. What horse-related purchase has most positively impacted your life in the last 12 months? That would have to be Henley, my little, my little gal. She has been a huge, she's, she's challenged me in ways I haven't been challenged in a long time. You know, so she is, she's smart and she's very thoughtful, but she's kind of driven by curiosity as much as anything. So. She makes it, you know, like you'll say Target. She'll say, okay. You know, and you're like, everybody else is flying to the Target. So she kind of presents some challenges and trying to keep her motivated and figure out what she values 
the most. So I think she has been my probably in a for you know probably over fifteen years. She has been a more challenging in a good way because I love all the pieces and things about her. And she's my first mayor that's been my own. So I think that her with her confidence and her her way about her, she is teaching me a lot in the best way. So she's stretching me more as a horse person. And now that, you know, she's going to clinics. I haven't taken a horse to clinics in a long time to go out and do demos and stuff. So now I have her with all of her personality and really trying to help her get back out into the world, get, you know, her out into the world to see things. And she's only two. So she, you know, it's, she also has a baby mind still. So I think she has been a huge influence and a huge, uh, she would be my best purchase. <laughs> awesome. And sounds like she's got a lot of personality and we all know that horses have their own individual personalities, but do you think there are certain categories that horses might fall in, in terms of their um, innate personality? I do. I find, I, I, and I can help, you know, I do a lot of online coaching. And so somebody starts telling me about their horse. I don't even need to see it. They could just start telling me and I'll, start saying, and I bet you they're this and this. And they're like, yes, that's so amazing. And it's not amazing, but there's typically that group of traits will go together or this group of traits will go together. So there's probably two camps in the biggest picture, but, but you can tell. So the ones you have your ones that are kind of shut down, maybe in learned helplessness, a little unmotivated, a little checked out, a little and then you have your ones that are too like, wah, and they're just too enthusiastic and too all over or too nervous or too, you know, so you're trying to bring those down to a nice sensible place. And the other ones you're trying to motivate and bring up. So I think they're probably two big, broad categories. Now they, they get a little more, you know, specific and individual within those categories, but there are certain ones that you just know what pieces are going to tend to go with that personality. So I'd say, yes, there are, there are kind of classifications that I'll start there, you know, and, and it's usually not very far off. Yes. Very cool. And do you have any favorite horse books? Um, I think that probably goes through, you know, with time, it kind of changes as I learn new things, but I will tell you when I first started writing, cause I started writing as an adult, there were two books that really were impactful for me. One was Sally Swift's Center Riding, which is just a good, you know, she's like kind of the original balanced riding, you know, balancey, you know, she just it taught me a lot about that. And, and in watching her teach people, she just has kind of a softness and the easiness to her. The other one was Jane Savoy's That Winning Feeling. And it was just a huge motivator of a book. So Jane Savoy, I find has been, you know, she's gone now, but she is a, been a really prolific and great writer about writer about horses, I think, but that winning feeling was really a motivational psych, you know, kind of sports psychology sort of book to it. And I think that was another really good one that they'll always stick in my head because those were the first. So there's other really good ones that have come and gone but I think that one is is really a strong one nice and can you tell us about your book and any upcoming projects or books or courses that you might have on offer soon absolutely so my book is now like 20 years old so it is and it's 
still is really a great book. I think it really helps. It helps to teach people in a very user-friendly way about positive reinforcement, just horse behavior, really, and what, what works to motivate them. But, but by now, so many people know so much more. At that time, nobody knew anything about behavior. So I couldn't really elaborate on a lot of things because it was so rudimentary at that point. And now people are so much more advanced. And, and the emotional component, I think, is so important that I realized people didn't quite get the beginning or I thought they did. And I realized they didn't. So I'm right. I'm writing a new book now, again, going to be published by Trafalgar Square, which is the same, same publisher, but it is going to be much more based on the emotional component and changing the emotional component and how to take it. Now that people know that a little bit more, I can focus on how to take it further because back then it was like, I just need you to understand these early parts, but now I want to take it to some of the, other techniques, you know, using it for getting horses started. So it'll be, I'm excited to get that, that out. So I should be turn it in, in February. And then I'm not exactly sure when it'll be finished because they do, you know, they do so much as a publisher to put the pictures in and get it, you know, get it all tidied up and get it printed and glossy and lovely and all that stuff. So I don't know exactly when it'll be available, probably maybe next fall is where I, I would think it might be. But but anyway, so I'm excited, excited about that. And then um, I'm going to start the podcast back up, which I did the 50 episodes, but working on that. And then I'm going to work on some online content so I can have some ways for people to, to you know, to follow through with things. And, and really, I think one of the biggest things was way back when I first started, there was only one person you know, they could really teach people. Well, now there's so much more and we have online. And frankly, COVID has taught people to be able to learn better online, you know, because it kind of forced our hand a bit. So I think it's going to be a great time to get, you know, more videos. Jesse and I will be getting videos of we have babies and young horses and getting them coming along and documenting that process. So, so keep your eyes peeled. That's a work in progress, but it's, it's on the horizon and coming up soon. Very exciting. And you also offer online coaching currently. Uh-huh. Yes. yes. So how can people sign up for that? Um, go to shaunacarish.com and on there, um, and we're in the process of redoing the website. So it'll be a little updated and you can sign up for things a little easier. And but but on there you can go to products and you'll find uh, the coaching is one of the products. So you can go and sign up for just one or three or six or whatever you might want to do. So, so yeah. So thank you for asking. I forget. I'm not so good about saying those parts and people feel like Jesse will say, and, and I'm yeah. like, Oh yes. We, yeah, so, so that's great. So thank you for asking and prompting me. <laughs> no worries. I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in that. Before we wrap up today, can you tell us what is the one message you would like our listeners to know or hear from today's interview? I think the biggest thing is that training should be fun for you and your horse. And I think that is so important. If we can keep that in mind, we can still go to great levels and do complicated, high criteria things, but, we, but it really needs to start with being fun. And I think that when we do that, we can get onto our big, lofty, even show agendas, but we need to do it in, in a way that's fun. And keeping it fun means we having a horse who's involved and happy. So I think that's really important. Amazing. What a beautiful message. 
Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm sure our listeners Thank will get you. a lot out of today's interview. It's It's been fantastic. Thank you again. Thank you. And I can't wait to see you again in the future. And really, maybe I'll get over to Australia sometime in the not too distant future. Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions from today's show, suggestions for future episodes, or just want to reach out and say hi, I would love to connect with you on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses. Remember to also register for my free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com.